Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're momming today with Congresswoman Sheila Sherfalis McCormick. In Florida, District 20. Congratulations, Congresswoman. You won by seven. You had 72 percent of the vote. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you because you look at Florida and and, and it used to be this swing state, but huge victory, nearly a 20 point victory for Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. And you're a Democrat and you won in a huge way on Tuesday. Um, what happened? Well, I think our district, we've always focused on economic mobility and economic stability for the entire family. And our message has been consistent and it resonates with so many people in the district. Um, when you're middle aged like myself and you're in a district, everything we do really is to make sure our kids are safe and our kids actually feel secure, but also our aging parents where a lot of the time, you know, we're caregivers. And we've been staying real strong on that messaging and making sure we're delivering for every American to be able to live with dignity. Dignity. What exactly does that mean, though? Is that meaning you're you're working to bring crime down and prices down, or does it mean you're doing more to support um, healthcare initiatives? Well, it means all of the above because when you think about being an aging parent, or you know, just putting so much into your children and putting so much into um, paying your taxes, being able to afford your prescription drugs is a dignity issue. When you have children that you raise and you protect and you send them off to school, um, living with dignity means that when I look my child in the eye and I say, you're going to be safe and today's going to be a good day at school, that I can say that and really mean it and not have me or my child being afraid of a school shooting today. And I think that's a dignity issue. I think that we should be able to pursue the American dream and cultivate our kids and our families without anybody really feeling or being in fear that something's going to happen. Um, and healthcare is such a huge issue. And a lot of times I know I got into healthcare from a professional level right when I came out of law school, but it didn't become real intimate with me until I was raising my daughter and she had a learning disability. And we couldn't figure out what was going on, how to go about it. It wasn't an easy course to navigate, especially when you're a new parent. Um, and so healthcare being normalized, stabilized, especially when it comes to learning and developmental issues, when it comes to mental health, when we see a lot of our kids becoming more anxious, it's imperative that we have systems in place to help every family. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about um, your life, your transition. I mean, you won your race earlier this year through a special election. Right. So now you were officially on the ballot. Right. This past Tuesday. Um, mm -hmm. What's your story? Did you wake up one day and say, hi, hey, I, I want to be in politics? How did how did all this start? 
Well, I never wanted to be in politics. <laughs> I never did. Uh, I always thought I always wanted to be um, a Supreme Court justice. And when I went to law school, um, when I went to undergrad, that changed quickly when I became a single parent. And um, I said, well, you know, I can't do certain things because I had to stay close to my parents to help me raise my daughter. Um, so I just went to law school and then I got into healthcare regulation because it was during the Affordable Health Care Act. And I really understood the law, understood how we can um, federal legislation. And so I worked in that capacity. Then eventually I became CEO of a healthcare company. And um, like I said, I was just doing what I needed to do to make sure that no one suffered and that they had access to health care, especially just looking at our climate and growth. Growing up, at that time, my father-in-law, who was a Vietnam vet, he got diagnosed with cancer, um, and he passed six months later. And a lot of the benefits, a lot of the therapies, um, experimental therapies that we were trying to get him into, we couldn't um, because they have such strict guidelines. Whereas my father, who's actually a doctor, he was able to get into it. He was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and he's alive today. You know, his cancer returned, but he had the option and the opportunity to get into an experimental program that actually worked. And I didn't want to see these kind of health disparities happen again. Um, so I said, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can in my professional life to make sure we can open up those doors. And then, like I said, it wasn't until I'm navigating and mind you, I'm in healthcare, I'm a CEO, my daughter is suffering with different um, developmental issues and I didn't know which direction to go. And I thought that was kind of weird because, you know, when you have cancer, they tell you where to go. You know, you go to an oncologist. Um, it's a very clear path. But a lot of times as parents, we're navigating this world of what issue is it? Do I need a therapist? Is it nutrition? Kind of by ourselves. There really isn't a clear path. And I felt like if just like if you go to a doctor and you say, I have a heart issue, they send you to cardiologist and the pathway is clear. Um, and you don't, when you go to your cardiologist, you're not paying for everything up front. We need to have something like that similar for our children and our families. And that's how I got the courage to run for Congress, never being in politics. But I said that I didn't want any other parent to struggle how I struggled and to go through what I went through with her. Um, to get to that place. And I ran for Congress three times. And on my third time, I actually made it. Okay. I, so much to unpack. So it, it just so happened you had to dash your Supreme Court justice ambitions to, <laughs> to just go to law school and just be the CEO of a healthcare company, right? But you saw what happened to your dad and your father-in-law and then your daughter, and it, your, your passion became your passion for giving back and making change. And you ran three times, three times is the charm in your district? Yes, I ran three times. And you ran in a big way. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. It's, you're talking about parents and trying to figure out how to deal with, you know, because we, well, how old is your daughter when, when you started to realize she might have had a learning disability? When she came, when she was in third grade, third grade, um, she always had like in second grade, she always had tutors, but she still was like happy and energetic. When she got to third grade, um, that's when it really was becoming hard for her. And not only was it getting hard for her, she started shutting down. And when I saw her shutting down, being afraid to go to school, being afraid to speak up, crying, then I said, you know, there's a huge issue here. And her teachers were great in trying to help us figure it out. Um, but it just, we, we were all kind of feeling helpless trying to help her because um, she stayed up all night studying. And I took her to get diagnosed. You know, they said, oh, go to this person. And she went to a therapist and they diagnosed her with everything. 
Um, and so I said, no, let me do my own research and speak to some other people. And I found her another doctor and they would say, well, you know, she has attention deficit. Not only does she has attention deficit, but because um, of everything she's been going through, she shut down. Um, her self-esteem was extremely low. She became very shy and she was anxious. And navigating that world as a single parent, first child ever, <laughs> it was extremely difficult. Um, and years later, I met my husband and he was a single dad going through the same thing. And our kids are a year apart. I have Stay so, I, I have so many questions about your daughter and also being a single parent. Uh, we will get to them when we're momming today continues right after this. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are back with Congresswoman Sheila Sherfilis McCormick on We're Momming Today. And um, are you, a single parent impressive. Uh, when did you get married to, to your current husband? We got married probably six years ago now. Okay. I was just, because I'm wondering how many single parents represent the United States in Congress. Do you know? I don't. I really don't. Because those are a whole set of, of other issues that, that you have to navigate. And I say that all the time, especially when I'm complaining about the challenges of raising kids and working, this and that. I, I always say, but at least I don't have to do it alone. I feel bad for all of those moms and dads out there that are doing this themselves, especially full time. You know, when there's not yeah. um, a, a co-parent in the situation or a good co-parent. It's a, it's a different circumstance. And, Completely. you know, we find so many parents now who are in this situation, especially um, male and female. You know, there was a time where we thought single parenthood was only women, but that's not the truth. The truth is that there's so many different things that occur that lead you to single parenthood, be it death, divorce, or just circumstances. And I think that it's one of the um, challenging things you can ever experience because along with raising your kids and having to do it by yourself, there's the guilt that you feel that if I had another parent or maybe my child is missing out or how can I make it better? But once you embrace your situation, understand that, you know, God determines everything. And in these situations, we do the best we can um, to give our kids the best we can. And they appreciate it and they see it. And looking at who my daughter is today, now we have a blended family. My husband, me and my husband have been married. Um, I have two kids now. And seeing them grow together, I don't think they missed a beat. And I think it's because the love that we kept on showering and letting them know that whatever you need, I'm here to give it to you. That never changed. Yeah. Um, to go back to uh, your daughter's issues that really came to light in the third grade, I have, um, my son is four. Um, and okay, he, he was a COVID kid. So he, you know, he was in school, but they wore masks all the time, even when they were outside playing. You're Florida, so that probably wasn't the case. And I remember um, last year I had asked his teacher, I'm like, you know, he's not pronouncing words the right way. What's your take on this? Well, I wouldn't even know, Lauren, because uh, they're in masks all day, so we can't hear what they're saying or they can't see how our our lips are forming these words. So I, I really don't know. Okay. I'm telling myself, it'll get better. He's still really little. It didn't get better. 
So I put him in, in private speech, and um, it seems to be just an articulation issue, and he goes twice a week. Fine. I'm able to do this. I'm more than happy to do this for my son. Try getting a four-year-old after a full day of school to do speech twice a week. It's nearly impossible. Okay. They have a program where we live um, through the Board of Education where they get speech within the school. So I call. Now we can't talk to you. Not interested. Your son doesn't have a problem. Have you evaluated him? I mean, I just, the obstacles that I've had to go through to get our board of ed to look at my son to see if he has a problem. And in speaking to other parents, I'm hearing even as the kids get older in kindergarten, they're having trouble getting their children evaluated. So I'm just, you're talking and I'm like, I I asked my doctor, who's a great doctor, but they're so overburdened because they see so many patients. It's in and out. It's like, how is it that a teacher, a doctor... Have have not noticed that my son clearly has an issue saying things. His speech pathologist wants to see him twice a week, and they're telling me I don't have a problem or not even looking into the potential problem. I have the ability, the time, and the resources to fix this, but a lot of parents don't. That's exactly what I went through. Um, I ended up taking off a year and a half to figure out what was going on, and I said, what about the rest of the parents who don't? What about the other kids who are shutting down, um, being socially distant, anxious? And what about them? And like you said, there's no clear path. And the teacher is trying to do as much to help as they can, but your teacher can't be your doctor. So in Congress, we've been looking at different um, resources we can put inside the schools because exhaustion is real. We can't expect young children to be in school all day and take all their resources afterwards. Eventually, I had to find a school for my daughter that had some developmental therapies during class time. And, and you had she, to become a sudden expert in how to navigate the system and, and find all of these these facilities. This is something you correct. don't know anything about. Right. And then we had to rehabilitate her from shutting down and integrating with the kids and getting self-esteem. Um And so the impact of us not having a system that's clear for parents, it's much deeper than what we really understand. And when we look at our kids when they get to the age of middle school and high school and they're withdrawn and they don't know how to um, engage and they feel alone and we wonder how did they get there? I sincerely believe it begins in the beginning when we're failing families in the beginning because we don't have the pathways to help parents when they're looking for help early on. And these our kids, unfortunately, just grow up living like that. And it's a recipe for disaster. What's the solution? I think right now, um, my committee is education and labor. And we've been looking at a lot of interventions and a lot more resources and putting more money into the schools. So just like, you know, I saw that private school that instead of having, um, let's say, uh, an art class, they had it half and then they did therapy, having more resources available in the schools, having more professionals in schools that can identify developmental issues, um, mental health issues. It just has to be a norm that there's someone overlooking it in the school system that can help direct it. And just like we see any kind of disease that pops up, we saw this with COVID, we start developing practices and mechanisms and teaching everyone of how to find resources, how to identify issues and who you should call. It has to be normalized in the school system also. If you're seeing speech difficulty, this is who you should reach out. This is how you can pay for it. 
all of that has to be outlined and us start teaching everybody how to they find make it as complicated as ever when it doesn't necessarily need to be that I have still not gotten my son an evaluation because we're doing 10 million Google meetings uh, beforehand it's like just cut to right. the chase just evaluate him um, so money's obviously part of the answer can, can I ask you your opinion because you are in, in a Democrat district and you are a Democrat um, there's a lot of complaints from parents and I think from Democrats too that the schools focus on w- wokeness and um, um, you know identity r- racial uh, gender uh, sex identity we're putting too much focus on that and maybe not into the things that really matter what would your response to that be um, I, I haven't seen, I'll say honestly, I haven't been around to see these issues. Um, and from the education, I go visit schools, I read at schools all the time. I'm very close to the school and I haven't seen anything. But I think that we have to be very conscious when we're teaching our children humanity and teaching our children how to respect everyone, that we are not... Um, that we are not alienating certain groups. And I don't believe that we should be teaching anything about gender identity. But when we read stories, everybody should be able to see themselves and see the world around them. So I don't believe it's an issue of wokeness or an issue of um, teaching kids. I know in Florida, there's a whole conversation of um, you're this in, idea. You're in the lion's den of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's this whole um, idea. But the truth is, if we don't teach our children our complete history and what has happened and how we've grown to be one of the strongest nations in the entire world, then I think that is a loss for us because every person, every human's line in life or pathway in life is one of you know, trying your best, failing and getting up, the little engine that could and who makes it. So part of our story is seeing when we did things that where we weren't our best and seeing how we've evolved to become our best. And right now we are really at our best. It's just unfortunate. A lot of people try to divide us, but what we've done as a country, how we've gotten past COVID, how every American pitched in to make sure that we were safe, it's amazing. And all of us have different backgrounds and different stories, but we can feel the humanity, the humanity in each person, and we can't lose that. And I think the more we focus on our differences and not focus on, I don't care who you are, you feel hurt, you feel pain, you feel like you need to have your mommy just like another person who might live in, in the suburbs or in the rural area needs to have their mommy. I think we need to focus on that because that's when we see each other as human beings who are deserving of love, attention, and affection. Final question. How did you have the strength to run three times before you won? It was a calling. <laughs> really? Okay. It was, it was a calling. Um, I'm very religious and I prayed I pray very often and I was just praying that um, I can do whatever I can do to help. And I always thought my lane was in healthcare, law, giving, helping people get jobs, expanding healthcare. And I was called to it and I did not want to do it. And I said, you know, please send me a, ask God to send me a, um, a sign, send me a sign if you really want me to do this. So I needed to raise $10,000 in like 48 hours to qualify. And I said, if I can raise $10,000 in 48 hours, I will do it. And we raised 11,000 at the last minute. How? How'd you do that? <laughs> um, 
I called, you know, they tell you, call your friends to raise money. So I called my friends and I said, hey, I'm going to run. And they're like, you are crazy. You've never been in politics. But they actually were crazy enough to donate. <laughs> Wait, that was the first time or the last time? The first time. Okay. The first time. That was the first time. But um, it was just very important for me that I was obedient. And I said that God has never failed me in my past, even through all the hardships that I've gone through, especially when you come from poverty to success, um, you understand that it's just total submission and God has a better plan. So I said, if this doesn't work out, then I know he has another plan. So even when I won the last time, I thought, well, maybe I'm running to bring these issues to light and to also show people a pathway of what legislation we need. And the last time when I won, I said, oh my God, (laughs) was this really the plan? (laughs) Like I was really supposed to be here. And um, I just wanted to be obedient. And this is the real last question. Um, What politicians do you look up to or that might serve as mentors to you? Um, Joyce Beattie has been wonderful. She is um, the chairwoman for the Congressional Black Caucus. But Nancy Pelosi has also been stellar. And um, I think it has something to do with Nancy has several children and grandchildren and she's a tough lady. And um, growing up, like I was born in New York, born in Brooklyn, um, then moved to Florida and lived in Florida. And like I said, I, I know toughness and I know what you have to be to be stern and I respect it. And when you're able to coalesce everyone so they can see one vantage point and everybody understands we need you here together and make it happen, I think that's wonderful. Joyce Beatty was instrumental in passing the infrastructure bill when so many people were divided and fighting. So I just look up to the strong women who know how to nurture and bring everybody together on one goal and one accord. Congresswoman, thank you for the time. Thank you so much for having me. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.